you're basically teeing up the field of flow science for a whole new frontier. Flow starts when you say yes to the fight. Getting into a flow state versus a trauma, getting into a flow state is associated with a proactive willingness to approach the situation, to approach the challenge, to face it. The fight response is localized in the thalamus, whereas freeze and flee were in the amygdala. It's a sense of, I got this. Versus, right. oh my God, I'm going to get my ass kicked. Our argument is essentially that flow is the flip side. It's this learned powerfulness. We know flow helps with burnout. We know flow helps with depression. Flow increases psychological well-being and subjective well-being and so on and so forth. If flow is associated with overcoming these challenges, and then when you achieve that, that's a felt sense of, oh, better than expected results. The influence flow can have on PTSD and alleviating and just improving mental health. We've proposed a theoretical model that, that allows us to explore that empirically. It's not just about peak performance and productivity. It's about well-being and resilience as well. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Welcome everyone. My name is Dr. Tori Higgins. I'm the head coach at the Flow Research Collective, and I'm being joined for a very special episode of FRC Radio today by our executive director, Stephen Kotler, and our chief science officer, Dr. Michael Menino. And this is an exciting episode because we're here to talk about the research article that they just recently published. It's called The First Few Seconds for Flow, a comprehensive proposal of the neurobiology and neurodynamics of state onset. And that's in the journal Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews. Thanks, guys, for taking the time to talk to us about some cutting-edge neuroscience today. Glad to be here. Good to be with you. Thank you. So this paper marks several firsts in the field of flow science, so let's let's dig right in. Um, I want to know, uh, Stephen, you know I always want to talk origin stories. So what's the origin story of this paper? Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the biggest gaps in our understanding of flow, particularly in regard to how we enter into a flow state? And what took you down the path to writing this paper? Mm. A bunch of different uh, complicated questions. Um, <laughs> in terms of uh, what did we know about flow the, the, and flow state onset, nobody had yet proposed anything for the neural dynamics, for the network level of the brain, or the neurobiology of flow state onset. People had started to do over the past 10 years, I think that's right, Michael, um, better work on, on sort of the neurobiology, the state itself. But how do we get there um, was an open question. I... Uh, Wait, Stephen, can I interject, actually? Yeah, please, of course. My first interjection. So we actually reviewed a paper um, called The Brain and Flow from Alameda in 2020. It's published in 2022. There's a lot of research about what happens when you're in the brain, what when you're in the flow state. But method that's methodologically very difficult, right? It's kind of tricky to get 
people in flow and put an EEG cap or put sure. them in fMRI scanners and get them in flow, let alone actually find out methodologically, okay, wait a second, you're not in flow now. Now let's get you in flow and see that transition. So it's a method it's also a methodological issue of the difficulty of studying this. Sure. And uh the approach in this paper, and I and I think what sets sets it apart um was interesting. So I have been looking at the question of flow and the question of extreme stress one way or another since, oh, I mean, I, I, I devote a chapter to it in West of Jesus. And so I like at least the early 2000s, I've been, I've been looking at this question of um, the relationship between extreme stress, the fight, freeze and flee response and flow. Like those questions have been there and there's work um, that I built on when I was writing West of Jesus done by a guy named Rob Schultes, um, that I think is the first time I've seen in the popular literature, and this is like 1986, kind of a neurobiological breakdown. And he took what was then sort of the existing endorphin hypotheses about flow, and he tacked down a bunch of stuff we were learning about extreme stress. So I've been looking at this question uh, one way or another for about 20 years, and what happened was we were doing uh, our inaugural event in Miami. Heidi Williams was in the audience and I was talking about the fight, freeze, or flee response. And I mentioned casually that some people believe there's no such thing as a freeze response, that it's actually what happens when you get fight and, and flee at the same time and the body freaks out and freezes. And it was just sort of like a casual aside, oh, this, you know, anecdote in the literature, interesting. And, and Heidi literally just called bullshit almost immediately. If you, if you know her, she uh, is not shy, and she's like, "That's not true. You need to look at this, the the work on PTSD. Um, you got to revisit some of these ideas." And I smiled and said, "Okay, yes, I'll do that." And you know, inside I was like, "God damn it! Somebody just proved me wrong on stage." And you know, um, every yeah, I have a favorite moment while you're giving a talk. <laughs> I, I, I was petulant. I was a little petulant, and uh, that's fine. Um, <laughs> That I don't mind when that happens to me because it made me go home and start doing the research. And, and what I realized very, very quickly um, was that the, the, a lot of my earlier ideas and these earlier ideas were very, very true. In fact, if you looked at compare the traumatic stress with or, or extreme stress with uh, flow, a lot of the same systems were being utilized. They're both authors' states of consciousness. They're very different. They share solo overlap, complete focus, and your things like that. Um, but I, I started asking myself, well, why does one experience become trauma and one experience become flow? And it led to um, a thought experiment. It's really a hypothetical, but it's based on like such real world phenomenon that like there are big exact studies on this phenomenon and that we have videos of it. And so it was really easy to visualize. But the question was, you're a motorcyclist, you're driving down the freeway, you get cut off by a car. Now, one of two things could happen. Maybe there are other experiences, but there are two really common responses. You swerve around the car, the swerve goes remarkably well, and by the time you're on the other side and you drive away, you're in flow, right? And with all of the core phenomenological characteristics of flow that are showing up, or same exact swerve, nothing is different other than, oh my God, I didn't feel in control and it scared me, and now I'm driving down the freeway feeling feeling traumatic stress. 
And it is the kind of situation that can lead to PTSD. So the question was, what the hell, like what, first of all, it gave me a framework for thinking about the problem because you're really talking about at max two seconds. So it went from this like really complicated challenge. How do you figure out what's going on in the brain, in flow or all this other stuff to what's going on in the brain in these two seconds and some of what happens in those two seconds for a few seconds of flow are literally already dictated by the experience, right? We know, for example, the experience is going to start with activity in the salience network because it that's the network that detects novel, unexpected stimuli, right? So we had a starting point. Okay, this whole experience, doesn't matter where everybody's brains are ahead of time, the experience starts when the salience network detects the car and it ends when you either drive off with traumatic stress or drive off with flow and that way of, oh my God, we've got this hugely complicated thing and suddenly it's crunched down and I just have to go moment by moment. And if, if you look at like how fast things happen in the brain, right? In a sense, the fastest they're, they're going to be able to take place is sort of within the gamma cycle. And we, we know how, how long that is. Like we know, we, we know what that is. So we could actually even chunk it down further and say, okay, you know, there are going to be 10 milliseconds that we got to account for here and 10 more here. And so it's, those are 20 data points rather than a million things we have to try to figure out. And to me, that felt like a very solvable problem. And because the motorcycle hypothesis, um, the being cut off by a, uh, by a car had been studied mm -hmm. already. Like people had done research and fMRI work and things like that. And what happens when you get cut off, but some of the gaps were already filled in. Um, so it was, I felt it was a very contained form for like this puzzle that like, you know, I've been staring at flow state onset. 25 years and I couldn't even find a way in. Suddenly I had a way in and some of the information already are filled in. And then it was just a question of like, you know, I mean, Michael and I really hammered at it. Some other people really joined in. There were a lot of conversations with a lot of scientists and thinkers along the way, just saying, Hey, is this possible? Is this possible? You know what I mean? I, t I, t I talked to lots of different people and, you know, sometimes the, the victories, like I remember talking to Paul Zach, who's sort of a God of oxytocin. And, um, Paul's also really good on flow and, and I, you know, do I have to involve the oxytocin system? And Paul is really convinced that unless there's social flow, this is a solo situation you don't. So that's an entire system that I didn't have to talk about. There were, so there were a lot of conversations like that with people where we were just like, okay, great. We can throw this out cause we don't, we don't need it. We can, you know, get, get more closer and closer to, you know, what we know is, is, is really active and. Um, I think as a final piece of the puzzle, our, our Richard Husky, who was one of our, our co-writers at UC Davis and is really one of the leading lights of flow research in America, had done really cool work on the... Scott Kessel had sort of laid the foundation, another one of our co-writers, establishing social neuroscience, coordination dynamics, and then Richard Husky had literally come in and started to look at the neural dynamics of, of flow and flow state onset. So we had... With his work, we also had a target. Like we knew we were starting and we sort of knew where one of the systems was likely heading. 
Yeah. Um, and that was really, that was really useful. I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, yeah. Let me jump in. Let me jump in. Yeah. Well, I before to... I just want to, I just want to, I want to cap, I want to recap some of this for our listeners. Okay. So the landscape coming into this paper, what I just heard were there were gaps in our understanding around the mechanisms driving the onset of flow, the neural dynamics or the information exchange that occurs while we're in flow. Yeah. Right. Also methodologically, how are we going to study this? Right. Because there's challenges of keeping people in flow and then putting them in some kind of imaging device, et cetera, right? And so I love that you came up with this theoretical model or this thought experiment of yeah. the motorcycle to start trying to tease out some of these questions. So, so, so I, yeah, so to add on that, that's like the, the it's a hypothetical situation, it's a thought experiment, so it happens in real life, obviously, and like Stephen said, it's been studied, but I wanna add on to that 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 extrapolates to other high stakes scenarios like in sports and combat and also low stakes scenarios. So we think the way the brain transitions into flow all happens across the board. This is the, when the brain gets to a flow state, when it finds that the flow state, this sort of thing happens. It's just that this sort of like, you know, you can even think about like a CEO um, about, in, about to give a presentation to the board and it could go really, really well. All the flow triggers are pleasant, are present you know, and, and it becomes a flow state or it can go really badly, right? And lead to, you know, X, Y, and Z negative outcomes, right? You know, in the psychology of that CEO. So I think it's brought- Oh, I've definitely had drama from bad presentation. Right. <laughs> yes. Especially when there's a lot at stake, right? And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it presents a really good um, way, entry point into exploring these, these neurobiological mechanisms of onset. So- what you're Victoria, doing? One thing I uh, I gotta add one final sure. thing. Um, sure. Only because I just I have found because we're now Michael and I one of the things that we're working on is a paper on intuition and thinking about the process of like having having an intuition. Again, it's a we can like when it shows up, you can isolate it to like those few seconds. So this framework has turned out to be really useful for thinking about, you know, a lot of the questions we have about brain stuff are these large scale processes, consciousness, you know, those sort of, these sorts of flow, these sorts of big questions, they're super complicated to wrap your head around. And I like this, this framework of like the onset of the experience as a, just as a starting point, as a way to get a toehold into these really complicated multi-layer processes where there's so much stuff going on i like it's a framework that like even if you want to take things down to the molecular genetic level which we didn't do in this time frame you could still do it you're you, you the scale is right that you know all that stuff is good so i i think it's a tool for for anybody looking to think about you know these kinds of hard problems i think it's a, it's a useful thing and, and when you mentioned tori just real quickly about the neural dynamics so yes Richard, um, who was an author on our paper, as Stephen mentioned, was really one of the first people to um, explore flow from a systems neuroscience perspective. And like when we say dynamics, like when we say neural dynamics and neurodynamics when people read the paper, really just what that means is different brain areas communicate with one another in really dynamical, rapidly switching ways, right? So you have one sort of like structure of the brain areas talking to one another, and then you have another one, and then another one, and you go through these sequences. 
um, in a very dynamical way that un unfolds over time. And that can happen enormously rapidly given the spatiotemporal scale of how these, you know, it's all about oscillation, which is like alpha wave, beta waves, gamma waves. Those are called neural oscillations, and that's how brain areas talk to one another. So, and I, I want to, so there's so much to unpack here. So I want to drill down into this framework that you've come up with. So we're, what we're talking about really is a high stakes or a high risk scenario that uh, has lots of different flow triggers, right? So the challenge skill balance is there. We've got someone that's deeply concentrated on the task at hand. In, your, in the paper, you're talking about the motorcycle scenario. So based on your exploration of the research, your review of all of the science to date, uh, what's your take on the different factors that might push someone in the direction that's in that situation, in the direction of either flow or to trauma? What's happening there? What, where, what's going on? Let me start with that. Well, let me, Stephen, you mind? No, I know you, you always like this one. So you, I love you, it. Yeah, yeah. So this is a great question. And so I'll start off with a quote from Stephen. Uh, he has this great quote in, in the art of impossible flow starts when you say yes to the fight. And so that's very, very interesting because there's always a, cha there's a, a challenge. You're presented with a perceived challenge and you're bringing a certain skill set to that task. So there's always this moment of, of approach or avoidance. And so what we think is happening here is that getting into a flow state versus a trauma, getting into a flow state is associated with a proactive willingness to approach the situation, to approach the challenge, to face it versus trauma, which is maybe associated with a reactive sort of willingness to avoid the situation. So you can couch this in terms of approach avoidance or fight or flight, right? Um, but flow is always, always associated with a challenge and a challenge presents difficulties to the brain. And so whether you're in a high stakes scenario or a low stakes scenario. And so that's what kind of we're exploring is this, this, this point of departure that the brain takes with approach versus um, with, a, with a avoidance. And it, Jory, it's worth, I mean, this isn't a new idea in this. Like if you go, but Hans Seals, like I think it's 1935 paper on eustress and de-stress, which was based on the herb stops and curve that becomes once chicks of eye shows up, the challenge skills balance, right? He had this notion of positive versus negative stress going all the way back in, the, in these two systems. And um, what's interesting about it, so some of this work, it really started, like I was thinking about all this stuff. I had dinner with Andrew Uberman when we were up in Seattle uh, at, at one of our early events. And Andrew's lab at Stanford had literally separated out the fight response. And they figured out that the fight response is localized in the thalamus, whereas freeze and flee were in the amygdala. And so the mechanism I was looking for, and we don't, we're not 100% certain if you're all, what Michael said is 100% true all the time. You're always going to say yes to the fight. You're always going to approach it. We, we believe that usually that actually means literally, quite literally triggering the fight response. So when that like that momentary surge, and while it's not in the paper, um, you get testosterone. Among other focusing and energizing chemicals, you get a little bit of testosterone with that fight response. And the 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 freeze response, the flee response, it's that I'm trying, I don't have control and I'm trying to run away that start. And it's and really want to emphasize it's not just 
saying yes to the fight and, and approaching, it's a sense of, I got this versus, oh my God, I'm going to get my ass kicked. Right. Now, you can go into a situation and think you're going to get your ass kicked and still triumph and end up in flow on the back end of it, but it's it seems much more unlikely. Um, yeah. And that's also part of the overall project here is linking, like you said, sense of, I got this. That's the phenomenological, subjective, like felt experience and linking that with what's going on in the neurobiology. So you have this neurophenomenological approach. So that's what we're really trying to do. And one of the goals in the paper for the first time in the literature, really trying to connect the neurobiology, the empirical data with the phenomenology, the self-reporting that Csikszentmihalyi studied and seeing how those mutually constrain one another, right? So how the data informs what people report, but then also using those self-reports, that sense of control to inform how we interpret the data from neuroimaging studies, for example. And it, which is huge, which is huge. This is a huge advancement in flow science and our understanding of flow. And it, if I'm hearing you correctly, it feels like one of these key differentiators between, you know, is someone going to go down the path to trauma versus the path to flow is this ability to act in that moment. Yes. So, and which seems like it has huge implications for, you know, building anti-fragility, resilience, and potentially even treating PTSD. Versus the, yeah, and in, in fact, the inability to act, right? Like going all the way back to uh, Vanderkolt's really famous 1989 paper, um, Inability to act is always associated with trauma. The end result of this inability to act is Marty Seligman's famous work on learned helplessness, right? Like where the inability to act is, is, is so bad that you just give up. Our argument is essentially that flow is the flip side. It's this learned powerfulness, yeah. right? It's, 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 uh, it's based on, you know, deciding to act and, um, in a sense, you can say that flow starts when we detect novel stimuli and decide to act on it. And it's interesting also, if you look at the uh, the systems level neuroscience view that we end up with at the end, Richard Husky's work, he we're either seeing metastability or, or synchrony, it's a little unclear, between the, the executive control network, which allows us to stay focused on task and, and, and keep out all distraction, and the goal-directed network. Mm -hmm. Right. And the goal directed network, that's this is acting and the ability to act and approaching. Like that's what's kicking that into gear. Right. Mm -hmm. The novel, in a sense, you can see the two things that end up being in flow. So you're getting involved early on, right? Because you you've got this salience thing that you're focusing on. So you've got the fr frontal parietal control network getting active right then and there. You've got the goal directed system kicking in. Bunch of stuff happens along the way. But in the end, Richard's argument is that these two systems, there's synchronous behavior, so they're doing roughly the same thing at the same time. The other, the other option is uh, Scott Kelso's idea around metastability, um, which is sort of the same things happening. It's just sort of a slightly different, different way. It's not quite as synchronous. And um, I think we need better imaging data to actually figure out which one Correct. that's yeah. going to be. Um, it's hard to get like these these neural the neural dynamics fast as michael said so like trying fmri you know it's yeah. like a two second picture yeah. and we we're talking about stuff that takes place in like two hundredths of a second right it's hard to it's hard to figure that out and 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 taking the back on that like um 
I wanted to go back to this idea of cognitive control and you, well, first of all, post-traumatic growth. So learned powerfulness, that's, this is one of the reasons why then there's research on this. There needs to be more research on this. We're actually working on this now that flow can actually, we know flow helps with burnout. We know flow helps with depression. Flow increases psychological well-being and subjective well-being and so on and so forth. But flow may also act as a very interesting therapeutic approach to PTSD. And this exactly may be why. And another bit of evidence to support that, that we review in our paper. This exactly may be why. That's a declarative <laughs> sentence for a scientist if there ever was one. I, I'm always, our job as scientists is to just tell me I'm wrong, falsify my hypotheses. Okay, right. Uh, I loved it. I, I'm fine with it. <laughs> this is like I'm hearkening back to my dissertation defense here. Um, Tori, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so, and, and Stephen, you will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so we, but this idea of PTSD um, and the relationship between flow and PTSD, if we do consider flow a matter of cognitive control, which Richard does, and we definitely discuss and think about too, and I'll explain that idea of cognitive control is just the brain going through its dynamical networks to be able to, uh, you know, figure out goals, uh, problems, tasks, and to deal with the demands that the environment places on the brain and those rapidly switching demands and being able to make decisions and that kind of thing, that's cognitive control. Flow might be an uber uh, cognitive control. And it's been shown actually that people with PTSD have trouble recruiting brain areas that are involved with cognitive control, number one. And number two, when they do learn to recruit those brain areas by doing specific behaviors and interventions, we see le less uh, PTSD. Yes, yes. Right. That's that's just really good evidence that this this actually might be the case. Um, Richard gives this great analogy of the the um, like a car going from a uh, standard going from first gear to sixth gear. So sixth gear is the flow state. It's this difficult to reach state because the brain needs to go through these networks, these different cognitive states and network topologies to find that flow state. And again, it happens very fast. But you can't just go from first gear to sixth gear. You have to. You have to go through these stages um, to get to this difficult to reach state versus an easily reachable state. Like, you know, I know I'm hungry. I'm going to go to the refrigerator and grab a piece of cake or something like that. Pardon the interruption. And thanks for tuning in to Flow Research Collective Radio. If you're listening to this, here's a bold bet I'm willing to make about you. My guess is even though you're a high performer, you're still only performing at about half of your capacity, maybe even 10%. Now, even if I'm wrong, assuming that you're performing at less than your full potential opens up the possibility for you to improve. And that's good news. When you've already outperformed most of your peers by a long shot, you've got a skill stack that people envy. That's why you earn what you earn. And yet you're just warming up. You know, those days when you knock out more in your morning than most do in an entire day. Well, what if you could perform at that level every day, reliably, consistently? What would that unlock for you? Now here at the Flow Research Collective, we study the human nervous system when it's functioning at its absolute best. After training thousands of high performers from Navy SEALs to Fortune 100 executives, here's what we found. You're evolutionary hardwired to perform at your best. All it takes is pressing the right mental buttons and pulling the right biological levers, so to speak. It's about getting your neurobiology to work for you instead of against you. Now, if you want to make operating at a 10 out of 10 level as natural as breathing, just go to getmoreflow.com. We'll show you how to reliably trigger a flow state where you feel limitless and you do your very best work. This won't require any biohacking or nootropics or gadgets or caffeine guzzling. This higher gear is endogenous, which means it's a state that your brain produces on its own. 
No external stimulus is required. Just go to getmoreflow.com to learn how to get your biology working for you instead of against you so you can make peak performance second nature. All the best. So just to kind of sum up this piece of the paper, it feels like um, the argument that you're, you're, you're hypothesizing here is that flow and post-traumatic stress are basically opposite sides of the same coin and that flow might be a primary driver of post-traumatic growth. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So you also you also explore the relationship of flow to other other alter states like psychedelic states. Can you talk a little bit about about that and, and why you chose to go down that path as well in this paper? Let me start and then pass it over to Michael because he's got a ton to say here. Um and I just gonna kick us off with a little. Um so one there's a ton of research on the psychedelic state. Like, as Robin Gard Ayers' lab um, for years has been giving people psychedelics and imaging their brain. So we have a really good picture of this is your brain on LSD. This is your brain on mushrooms. This is your brain on MDMA. Literally, this is literally. your brain on DMT, right? And, uh, and we had worked, partnered a little bit with Richard's lab already uh, years ago to do sort of like comparisons between flow state onset and some set setting psychedelic stuff. So we knew that that was a fruitful, it was fruitful collaboration there, but it was, and, we, and we've got a lot of information about traumatic stress mm -hmm. also. So it was, we had less information about flow, but we've got really good data piles in these places and there's a lot of overlap. So you don't normally think about the overlap, but like, you know, for example, flow and traumatic stress, both have complete concentration. You're going to be paying attention to the thing, right? We see uh, at the in, in psychedelic states and in flow states that sensation of oneness with everything and the dissolution of self, time dilation. We see that you also see time dilation or time passing strangely and traumatic stress. So there's all these overlaps in phenomenon also that, you know, you, you, can, you can start asking really good questions. Well, why is LSD doing this? Flow's doing this and trauma's doing this. And while there's maybe not enough information in any one of these piles to solve that question, you put them side by side and start looking at it that way and it becomes really rich. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen, you, you said everything. So you, really? You hit the nose it? Never. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> okay. All right. No, no, let me, let me frame it. So we, we wanted to extend our model into the psychedelic state, I think, for what Stephen said, but you can couch that in terms of for two reasons. One, because we know that psychedelics have a massive impact on treating with new psychotherapeutic approaches of psychedelic-assisted therapy, PTSD, depression, even alcoholism, like all kinds of... Um, and there's a, there's a, we have a really good model about why that happens. This is based on Carhart Harris's and Friston, Carl Friston, who's the top cited neuroscientist right now in the world. Um, they have this model about that it describes how that happens and really explains very nicely why psychedelics work so well to alleviate these symptoms. We could talk about that. But the second reason, as Stephen said, is because there's a lot of similarity between the flow state um, and psychedelic state. So there's an altered perception of time. There's a diminishment and altered perception of self. Um, so you have some 
you know, and we can put people in scanners and, and give them psychedelics and just let the world happen to them. And just, you know, again, very difficult to do with flow, but very easy methodologically to do with psychedelics. Although legally there's this, there's people here in the States and the UK are trying right now to like figure out how to study psychedelics in a lab, but we have really good rich information about that happens. However, there are a lot of distinctions and points of departure between psychedelic state and a flow state. So in a flow state, you have clear goals. You are bringing a certain skill set to your task, to the challenge at hand. There is immediate feedback and so on, which you don't get in a psychedelic state. I mean, going back to the motorcyclist scenario, imagine the motorcyclist, what they would do if they were <laughs> down that highway, 90 miles an hour in a car swerves and they were on shrooms. Um, much different outcome, right? Uh, so we can make inferences about what happens and how the brain transitions into a flow state from looking at what we already know about this data, uh, neuroimaging data from a psychedelic state. And um, we think we've covered that very comprehensively in the paper, and it provides a really good tool um, uh, to extend the model to understand what's going on in the brain during the flow state and how it gets into the flow state versus, for example, trauma. So, which is incredible because previous to this, right, it's it's all kind of anecdotal and or correlational, right? So this is creating a, a model to actually test this. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about what are the what are the specific gaps that this paper is seeking to address? Because you're you're basically teeing up the field of flow science for a whole new frontier. So can you talk a little bit more about that? I've got, I'll, I'll just talk about one or two points, which is there's, I, think, I want to say four or five, maybe more yeah. um, measurable signals in the brain that seem to precede flow state onset. And um, some of those are very new to this paper. The one that we're most excited about um, is what's known as the P300B. So I'll, um, let me finish my statement, and then I'll come back to what the P300B is. My statement is, sure. what's cool about this, it fills gaps of, it gives us new ways to test markers for, oh, this is the brain moving into flow, now we know, and it unlocks a whole ton of computational modeling approaches, which is one of the things Michael and I have been talking about since we first met, about, oh my God, like let's start you know, really bringing, bringing the tools of computational modeling um, and computational neuroscience to this problem. The P300, well, I did. so let's talk about the swerve itself and the transition into flow. This helps. So you, the first thing you've got to realize is there's probably not one swerve. In our scenario, we give you three. That's if you watch motorcyclists, there's a swerve away from the object, but you just yank the bike right. So now you've got to sort of swerve back to course correct, and then it straightens out and you lock into a new trajectory. So there's really like movement, counter movement, final trajectory, right? Essentially three mini swerves. What we realize is, and this is really like the clearest signal of flow state onset is as you have that first successful swerve, there's going to be a bunch of pre-stuff in the brain involving mostly phasic dopamine and things along those lines. But you're gonna you're gonna make that swerve. It's gonna go better than you expected. 
and you're going to get a signal of surprise. Oh my God, I got better than expected results. That signal is known as the P300B. P means positive. 300 is 300 milliseconds. So 300 milliseconds after the event, right? Post event um, is what the P300 is. And there's an A, which happens when we detect novelty and a B, which happens when we detect surprise. So literally every time you make a swerve, and by the way, when you get that P300B, you get a little more dopamine because it's, you've just attained a goal, right? So the system is feeding on itself and getting more intense, but it's these multiple P300Bs that we think show up at the front end of a flow state that nobody's looked at before. And this, because it's even, you know, take it out of this high stakes scenario, I'll just give you like personal and anecdata from writing. And then, and Michael, I'll talk about uh, it, Alex Honnold a little bit with this, but, uh, you know, invariably when I'm writing and it starts going well and I'm like at the front end of a flow state, it's usually what happens is like I write a sentence or a fragment of a sentence or a couple of words or whatever where I'm get it's a better than expected result. I'm like, oh, what? like I there was a challenge and I solved it. And the answer, I, I read it and I'm like, oh my God, right? Cool. And I get a little more fired up. And usually, for me at least, I'll get three or four of those like flowy, arty senses, sentences sort of in a row. Um, and that's usually like, that's my transition into flow every morning as a writer. It's that like, and there's a specific way I sort of behave with the material to, to help engender that. But um, that's a really like common scenario. And then the, the Michael was actually just, we were talking about uh, the recent Alex Hoddle movie. Where you can literally see the the other. Wait, wait, wait! Hold on, hold on, because you're gonna skip. So that I will skip. That's back to the neurophenomenology. That's the whole point of the paper. I mean, if flow is associated with overcoming these challenges and you know stretching but not snapping, and then when you achieve that, that's a felt sense of oh, better than expected results. So if flow is associated with that self or that sense, that subjective sense of better than expected results on achieving challenges. There's an effortless, this is amazing. Turns out there's a, we can, there's a neuromarker for that. There's actual very well-studied neuromarker for that specific experience. And this, this, this P300, and it's been very well, it's associated with, it changes with age. Um, it changes with um, certain neuropathologies like dementia or schizophrenia or even tinnitus and things like that. So you can actually blend the subjective and the objective here with this idea of, and so we can say, if we find empirically a series of these P300 waves, when you're actually, that, that might mark neurally this transition into a flow state. You see? When I take one step further, then I'll let you come back to the Alex Honnold thing. Yeah. Just, I just want to build up what you said for just half a second. Yeah. Because you were talking about neurophenomenology, and this is such a classic example. So one of the classic, def, uh, one of the six core characteristics of flow is a sense of control. Yeah. Right? When you have multiple P300, right? Oh my God, I'm better than expected results. Better than expected results. What does that give you? I'm in total control of shit. Yes, I keep good. in control. Amazing. Right? Like that's that. Yeah. That's the exact feeling. Yes. Um, and, 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 and that's testable spirits and flow. And this is exactly where it comes from. Yeah. And that's, and that's testable. And so with Alex Honnold, I was still like talking to Steven, um, you know, that's a high stakes scenario, right? And a back to that sense of control. I got this, I can overcome this challenge. Alex was climbing I, half to Oprah. 
But when Alex when Alex was free soloing El Capitan during you know in his movie Free Solo that Jimmy Chin produced, um, he's you know I got this I can approach this I'm not going to avoid this right it's a very challenging situation. Well, there's one scene in the movie where in the documentary where he has to go up this I forget what the actual part is it's like a straight up part but he has to do this karate kick to get to that that point and he practices the flexibility and practices the karate kick in that point in the movie where he does the karate kick and he makes it, it's like a, that's like the most challenging part of the, the the solo I believe so he does the karate kick and he like looks up at the camera he looks up to Jimmy Chin and he likes a huh, like this kind of you know he smiles like oh I got it that was a better I you know it was a better than expected result major p300 that probably happened and soared the rest of the thing in flow and I mean it's so cool and I think you know as I was reading your paper this was the experience I was getting as you were you know because you you do this so beautifully you talk about the different levels you talk about the neurobiological changes the neurochemical changes how information is being exchanged throughout the brain and how it all relates to the phenomenology of flow and it all just starts to make sense when you look at it in this framework so I think I, it's well done on putting this all together and to your point now it's all testable right now that we have this framework to think about flow and all of the different levels of potential changes that are occurring there was the other thing about the paper you asked um another gap that I that I really um, and I'm really proud that it filled this gap is I felt that any proper definition of flow state onset, you've got to account for one, you got to account for the, like the six core phenomenological characteristics of flow. Obviously you also have to account for how the, all the flow triggers work, right? If this is the onset of flow, right? You should be able to see where the, the purported triggers are working and why. And finally, um, you should also be able to see all the performance benefits and be able to say, okay, this is, this is why we're getting all those things. And now we're not, I don't think we're not the first people down this rabbit hole. Other people that have taken swings at this as well. Um, but I like, I like where we ended up. Um, I think it, I think it's coherent and, um, let's get some advantages over a lot of the stuff that came before. Yeah. I, I, and also, uh, one gap in the literature is the distinction between correlation and causation. And that you get that a lot of neuroscience and psychology and, and so on and so forth. But I think w one of the things we've done to address is that, you know, what, 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 what's correlated with the experience of flow what, or the antecedents to flow that actually have a causal mechanism for getting into the state that cause the brain to transition into the state and start you know start doing different things dynamically so i think we've addressed this idea between correlation and causation in a way that no previous paper in flow neuroscience does at least can you and can you talk a little bit about so we haven't really gone into your discussion of flow triggers in the paper can you talk can you give a quick summary of, of where you go with that Yeah, sure. Um, it's I so it's interesting. Um, in terms of uh, the triggers and the performance benefit, this is it's almost funny. Um, almost everything you're looking at, with the exception of grit and some of the creativity stuff, we can come back to that. Uh, 
both on the on the trigger side and the benefit side, it's all tied to phasic dopamine. So, mm-hmm. right, tonic levels of dopamine are just, you know, where you're at phasic are these sharp spikes in response to things going on in the world. And almost all of the performance benefits can be tied to phasic dopamine release. And um, all the triggers are basically you get you you get you get a shift in in the salience network, which gives you um, some activity in the locus coeruleus and norepinephrine system, and you get uh, some uh, activity in uh, all the dopamine systems. And it definitely seems like the triggers are more tied to phasic dopamine than they are to uh, the LCNE system. It seems like that system sort of opens the door for focused attention and that's where it sort of starts, right? Um, and I, like when you look at things like complete concentration, that uh, that process, it literally starts with the salience network and that activity starts with the locus coeruleus producing norepinephrine, but it's maintained for phasic dopamine. So it's really those two, those two systems from a, from a trigger standpoint, we see the most, where uh, the paper gets interesting, I think, and, and, and raises questions is in and around, what do we mean by the challenge skills balance? Mm-hmm. That gets, one of the things that, that seems to be clear from our paper and other work is that um, the challenge doesn't really, like, we're sort of taught that you have to like use your skills to the utmost and that may have more, not this is speculation. I'm not, this is not in our paper, but that may have more to do with the need to fight this need to approach than anything sort of longer lasting. Um, all right, I'll stop there. Okay. I, so, ahead. You know, I want to like comment on the locus aurelius neuropinephrine system because I, 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 you know, we do we do cover those systems in the paper, and actually, we review a paper that was published because a part of our paper is a review, a comprehensive review, and we review a paper in 2021 that there was a little mini mini kind of like publication that talked about the locus aurelius neuropinephrine system, and um, one of the things that we propose in our paper is this idea of the adaptive gain theory, which was published by uh, Ashton. Jones or something like that back in 2005. And the idea is that you, you don't want to be too distractible, right? But you, you don't want to also be inattentive and sort of non-alert. You, the locus surreal needs to be fine. Hey, Stephen's right. It's attentional regulation, right? It's that idea. Some flexibility. You, you need a Goldilocks zone. You need some of that flexibility. Same thing, by the way, with the psychedelic state and how this happens with flow. Flow needs to be in that Goldilocks zone, that inverted U-curve between of, of firing just right. And the interesting thing is that that matches the yerk stodson curve, which Stephen mentioned earlier, which is all about performance versus, you know, stress or cortisol or whatever you have down there. And you have, you know, you don't want to like be bored, right? But you don't want to be burnt out. You want to be optimal performance happens at the top of that curve there. We have just the right amount of stress matches just the right amount of locus aurelius firing neuropinephrine. And the other thing is, too, really interestingly, so the locus ceruleus projects into the prefrontal cortex, and it projects to different pathways into the prefrontal cortex, which we know is in certain ways involved in localized hyperfrontality. Certain parts shut down, certain parts light up, certain parts communicate with other areas of the brain in this cognitive control way we talked about earlier. But 
one of the pathways is that the locus ceruleus allows us to ignore distractions. And then the other pathway that the locus ceruleus projects to um, allows us to, or gives us the ability to ignore, um, curb impulsive behaviors. So you're, you have this simultaneous ability and that might be back to your question and, um, sort of a mechanism or an entry point into like why these triggers work the way they do. Hmm. So we've covered so far, what are maybe the, the neurobiological mechanisms driving the onset of flow? What are some of those differences that might propel you towards stress or towards flow? We've talked about flow and post-traumatic growth. We've talked about a little bit about the neural dynamics. Um, that are that are going on during flow, uh, and also how is the neurobiology related to uh, the phenomenology of flow? So, and this is all captured in in the model that you outline in the paper. So, I, I want I'll give you both a moment to think about it. But my big question, because you you lay out a, an agenda for potential future research um, that can now be undertaken. I want to know from each of you what you think the the biggest burning question is for what's next for flow science. Where do we go from here? What's the next biggest question we should be seeking to answer now that we have this model to work with? There's definitely some validate. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that I'd like to try to validate. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, like, I'm just thinking about some of the stuff that we're working on. We're working on a paper on flow and uh, caffeine. We're working on flow and pain. Um, we've been working on flow a little bit in the endocannabinoid system. Uh, there's a bunch. And it, these are all, one way or another, they're sort of aspects of the, of the same thing. So I think um, for a while, we're going to be sort of playing in that spot I, one of the things that so one of the things that's really interesting to go to the systems level a little bit deeper yeah. like what's the difference between a psychedelic state and a, and, 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 a, and a flow state michael touched on it in psychedelic states uh you see like a lot of under actual connectivity different parts of the brain just talking wildly with each other it's like a giant conversation all over the brain flow is much more constrained like you can have this crazy wild conversation, but it's inside very tight bound. And the reason I'm really interested in this particular thing, because it gets at the thing that I that I find so magical in flow, which is the, its impact on creativity. Mm -hmm. So you get this massive heightened of creativity, but it's it's very limited. It's inside a tight box, which um is funny because it's sort of again it mirrors the phenomenology. Everybody knows that like. The blank page is really intimidating, but if you set some pre-existing limits, it's easier to be creative inside those limits, right? This is just creativity research 101. I talked about it in The Art of Impossible, and it's mimicked by the neural dynamics. You see that exactly in the neural dynamics, and um, similarly, you see uh, the temporal parallel junction get involved. This is a part of the brain that does perspective taking. So you've got the creative stuff and perspective taking. The reason these things are really interesting to me is... And we push on that create, like of all the things that, that, that we want to use to flow to amplify, I've always been so deeply fascinated with creativity. It's so important to the world. It's so important to society. And this gives us a way of looking at it where I don't think it's just actionable or practical quite yet, but it's a way to start asking deeper, harder, more interesting questions about flow and creativity. And it also gets, um, 
are there like advantages to being creative without flow? Like when, when might that be, you know what I mean? All those kinds of questions, um, open themselves up to a different kind of analysis now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested. That's great. I'm, I think like, like I said earlier in this talk about, um, the influence flow can have on PTSD and, and, and alleviating and just improving mental health. And I think this, we, we propose a theoretical model that, that allows us to explore that empirically. So that's another one of these. Yeah, I agree flow with that. Has, flow has these uh, effects on, as I mentioned earlier, subjective well-being and psychological well-being. And those have been distinguished in the literature, and flow has the effects on both. And uh, But why? Like what? That, Jory, uh, Michael and I are also working on a paper for... Uh, um the military right now yeah uh, and, and uh we're yes. looking at resilience yeah and it's just it's the next extension out of this question yeah. like flow and resilient why are special special forces more resilient than average army what does it have to do how does it have to do with flow and social neuroscience and all these same sort of questions right you know resilience post-traumatic growth they were all it's all the same grit this is all the same neighborhood right um they seem and to be it, the same sets of systems. And if there's a flow network that might be like a, you know, a, a, a sing, you know, a way the brain finds the flow state in terms of a flow network that might be involved in cognitive control, which we propose in this paper, um, it gives us a way to empirically testably yeah. model that and, and some neuromarkers that might be associated with that. There's a lot of... yeah a lot of open questions that this paper sort of like gets the points to and hopefully will get other researchers thinking about how to approach these both methodologically, theoretically, um, you know, empirically, and, and, you know, even, even the reviewers of our paper actually, you know, highlighted that too, that it could have this sort of big impact. And that's not, that's, that's kind of there to get. One, yeah, Tori, one of the things Michael just said, it. I just, this allowed, I've been saying, God, I probably wrote it in West to Jesus. I've definitely been talking about it ever since. But I, you know, jokingly used to say, I was talking about, you know, flow is an anecdote for grief. And I used to say, if you're heartbroken, go skydive because it'll overwrite the memory, right? It's a, it's more powerful. And um, this is not a new idea. You know, this is not a new idea. Um, I wasn't, I don't think the first person uh, to talk about using flow to heal trauma and, you know, people have been poking it for a long time, but what we now have is, as Michael pointed out, we've got mechanism and, you know, and that allows us to ask a totally different set of questions and it allows you to get very, very practical, right? I mean, almost everything we do at the collective starts with neurobiological or, you know, neurodynamical mechanism mechanism and we've worked from there so the fact that we have this picture of flow state onset um you know i want to say i gives the clients the flow research collective a pretty good advantage right and and to leverage how to get into flow if we understand that how that happens in the brain this could be leveraged for a practical application and really it, it ties the, a theoretical framework for how flow works in the brain, which has not become before this paper. And it, it, it ties that to an implementation strategy, possibly. 
and a practical application, which is, is on the ground for people looking for more flow in their lives. Which is huge. I think that this is a massive step forward to advance the field of flow science just in general. And it's not just about peak performance and productivity. It's about well-being and resilience as well. So amazing. Well, thanks team for taking the time to discuss the paper. Hopefully everyone's now running out to go read it. It's the huge paper, so we distilled. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's an open it. access journal. It's an open access journal, so it's free online, right? Yes. And this is and this is their new reading guide. If if they run into you know any trouble with the technical pieces, so thanks thanks again for taking the time. We're having trouble sleeping at night. <laughs> Boy, do we have a paper for you? <laughs> you well, then it could flow while reading this paper. If you don't, then it's not challenging enough. You know. I was going to say that speaks to how nerdy I am because I was riveted the entire time. So, but you know, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. All right, folks. We'll have a great Thank day. You, Thank, you Thank, Thank you again. Thank you, Michael. Great. Bye everybody. Take care. Hey, it's Joshua with the production team. Now your time is priceless and in terms of dollars and cents, it's valuable. Whether you're an entrepreneur, executive, or a manager, you're paid well. But when you're short on time, you end up in a tailspin. Now, if you want to get more out of less time, just go to getmoreflow.com. We'll show you how. Because you know that when you manage your time well, you can move mountains. But your time is like sand, slipping between your fingers. Your to-do list grows, but time doesn't slow. You'd think that with less time, you'd work harder or smarter, but a scarcity of seconds makes you prone to procrastinate, which makes things worse. But you can end this time trouble right now. Here's how. Make more out of less through flow. You don't actually need more time. You already have enough. What it takes is switching to a higher gear of performance to get more out of that time. Now here at the Flow Research Collective, we study the human nervous system when it's functioning at its absolute best. There's a peak state you can tap into with reliability. It's called flow or being in the zone. It's an optimal state of consciousness where you feel your best and perform your best. And in it, time seems to slow down. Now if you want to access flow consistently and reliably, just go to getmoreflow.com. Our protocols come from research out of Harvard, DARPA, and Stanford, and others. Our founder, Stephen Kotler's work, has been praised by the likes of Elon Musk, Bill Clinton, and Vishen Lakhiani. We draw from over 25 years of flow science to train a wide range of peak performers, from Navy SEALs to Fortune 100 executives. Because our training is grounded in neurobiology, it works for everyone. So if you're interested, just go to getmoreflow.com for all the details. That's getmoreflow.com. All the best. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.